Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche in for Lucy Nalpathangel. One week after a mass gathering of white supremacists in Charlottesville, Virginia resulted in the death of a young woman, thousands rallied in Boston against hatred and bigotry. Today, we're talking about responding to hate. Later, we'll examine the most effective ways to counter extremism. But first, we wanted to get a historical perspective on where we are now as a country. How is it that we're seeing a resurgence in white supremacist gatherings? And what can our past teach us about where we're headed? Is white supremacy on the rise, or is it just more visible because of social media and the internet? You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. You can email wherewelive at wnpr.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us by phone is David Blight. He's a professor of American history at Yale University. He's also the author of a Guardian piece called The Civil War Lies on Us Like a Sleeping Dragon, America's Deadly Divide and Why It Has Returned. Professor Blight, welcome to Where We Live. Uh, Thank you very much. So in your recent piece uh, that I just referenced, you talk about Abraham Lincoln, who once said that danger cannot come from abroad, uh, that if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. I mean, very strong language. And, and I, I guess the way I interpret that is, is he's saying that um, the sorts of things that in a free society that, uh, um, that uh, could bring it down need to come from within because that's sort of the, the structure of a free society. Um, can you just explain your understanding of what he was saying and how that's re- how that might be relevant to our situation we're facing today. Yeah, well, Lincoln said that in 1838. It's one of his earliest public speeches, and we, we love to refer to it because it seems to be so prescient uh, of much later the Civil War that would come. Lincoln is saying that at a time when the United States really didn't have foreign enemies to speak of, but it had a uh, a growing, roiling, expanding internal problem over slavery. And uh, it was Lincoln's way of saying, uh, if we are ever if this republic is ever to fall apart or die, uh, it'll die internally. It'll come because republics turn on themselves. And uh, he, he was not incorrect, of course. Uh, we eventually did a few decades later. Um, it's a prescient warning even for today. Uh, republics, uh, democracies are messy, uh, sometimes awkward, and sometimes very violent. And uh, we've been all of those things. And so you also talk about um, the politics of race in your piece. You talk about how um, as long as America has a politics of race, it will have a politics of uh, civil war memory. Uh, and, and I guess it's it might be hard for some people to understand that because in one way we sort of need a politics of race because there are still um, you know systemic there still is systemic racism there needs to be some sort of approach to to address that um, so but at the on the other hand uh, there is that the to your point um, that sort of continuing um, 
uh, uh, recalling of the Civil War based on the politics of race. So I'm wondering, what do you what do you mean by that when you say that as long as America has a politics of race, it will have a politics of Civil War memory? And how do you think? Um, and just expand on your thoughts you, you were mentioning earlier in terms of the Civil War continuing to influence divisions in our country today. Well, I wrote a long book about this called Race and Reunion some 16 years ago. Uh, it is amazing to think now how it's more relevant now than it was then. That that line about if we, as long as we have a politics of race, we'll have a politics of how we remember the Civil War. Well, we've always had a politics of race. Uh, it's endemic. It's inherent. Uh, to this society. It is our deepest dilemma. It's probably an eternal dilemma. We should never fool ourselves that there's some Shangri-La out there awaiting us on questions of race. But whenever, um, whenever race does explode, whenever we face yet another racial reckoning, which we are having now, it is remarkable how much uh, the meaning of the Civil War, and now certainly its symbols and its results, um, uh, come to the fore, just explode. Robert Penn Warren once said, <laughs> the Civil War lays around in American memory like un- unexploded grenades in the leaves. We never know quite when they're going to blow up. And it's that's exactly what seems to have happened now. Now, as to why this is happening now, there, there are many answers to that, but I would urge everyone to focus on what we might call the shock of events. Now, white supremacy is, is, has always been there. It comes, it goes. It is rising again in terms of organizations. The Southern Poverty Law Center has some, some, some extraordinary reports on this that show, particularly in the years of the Obama presidency, these groups um, proliferated, uh, had, much, had a much wider voice because of the Internet and so on. But... All of our concern about Confederate monuments, memorials, symbols, most of it anyway, stems, we must admit, from the mass murder of nine black people in a church in Charleston. That event made everybody reposition themselves to these symbols, whether they wanted to or not. There were plenty of (laughs) members of the South Carolina legislature who voted to take down that Confederate flag on its capital grounds who never would have believed they'd ever lived to do that. But events sometimes make us reposition ourselves. And now, of course, Charlottesville has every day some new Confederate memorial or monument or name is being taken down. This morning's news is the University of Texas. Where will it be tomorrow? Um, We respond to events. We're creatures of response and reaction, whether we like that or not. But uh, we are living one of those reckonings again. And whenever we have these racial reckonings, we find out just how useful race is for people who want to use it, and especially for white supremacists. White supremacy is a malleable ideology. It can go over here and hide for a while, and then it breaks out again over there. It's always there, this kind of racial resentment or racially defined resentment. It's always there for Americans who want to use it. And of late, they, of course, have had a voice. Let's be honest, a voice, a spokesman in high places. And um, leadership matters in determining what are normative behavior and non-normative behavior. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Southern Poverty Law Center because we have somebody uh, from them on in the next segment. Um, so th- when you talk about these removal of statues as sort of a reaction to um, events that take place, do you find that that, that is almost uh, like an, it could be considered an empty gesture in terms of just being reacting to a moment in time, whereas, to your point, white supremacy having always been a thing, um, the need to address it is sort of consistent, but... Um, an incident then sort of makes people react in pulling statues down. But does that really, what, what does that actually do to address um, white supremacy as, it, it almost seems like it em- emboldens them and empowers them rather than addressing systemic racism or systemic white, or the rise of white supremacy? Well, I wouldn't accuse anybody of an empty gesture without knowing them or knowing the local circumstances and so forth. But I do worry, as a historian in particular, historians' instincts are not to erase we want we want everything out there to study. In fact, a lot of us are arguing now that as these monuments and memorials come down, uh, you know, we want a lot of them preserved somewhere. We don't want the record of this to just vanish so that people can't study it. However, on the gesture issue, here's what does worry me. <laughs> in fact, I just read a quote in this morning's paper from the president of the University of Texas saying that his view of Confederate monuments just changed overnight because of what happened in Charlottesville. Now, I don't know the man, and so I don't want to cast aspersions without knowing his own background and so forth, whether he grew up in Texas or the South or wherever. But if it takes a Charlottesville to literally change your mind about monuments, you haven't thought much about American history. You haven't learned much American history. You haven't learned the basics of how this country put itself back together and forged a reconciliation around the Jim Crow system after the Civil War. What worries me is this, that so many mayors, governors, perhaps college presidents, and other kinds of leaders are rushing now in almost an atmosphere more of fear than of analysis. You know, fear rather than understanding or examination to remove these things, remove all these symbols. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these symbols and monuments, some large, some small, but to just rush to remove it and to do it in the middle of the night because you're afraid of the far right coming to your town or your city or your campus and holding some demonstration is not a reason to do it. Isn't that sort of the problem probably is just overall lack of understanding of history? It seems like that is a, a, a problem that has plagued human oh, beings sure. throughout time. We tend to kind of re- repeat mistakes constantly and, and things tend to we tend to uh, experience the same kind of things over and over again. Um, yeah. Is that so? Is, what's your understanding of our understanding of history? I mean, is that why you think it's important for people to understand uh, what happened yeah. in the Civil War and what kind of parallels maybe can we draw from then and now that could help us really understand? Sure. Where we well, are. if you ask a historian whether there's enough historical understanding out there, we will always say no <laughs> because it's our business. On the other hand, it's not just lack of knowledge of history; it's that. We all grow up with, learn by some means, whether it's schooling or or other public means. We learn narratives. We learn stories that we believe we live in. Everybody has a sense of history. Everybody has a sense of the past, at least through their families. 
And history really is about competing stories and competing narratives and what the lost cause became. The lost cause tradition that was forged in the South in the wake of the Civil War and really took hold in the culture by the late 19th century and even became a kind of a national tradition by the early 20th century is a version of history. The lost cause was, a, was an ideology, mostly a racial ideology, in search of a history. So what we've got is millions of people who've come to believe certain narratives, certain stories. This is what drives the white supremacy movement in many ways. It's not just racial hatred. It, it is that. And it's a lot of cockamamie ideas about race. But it's also a narrative. It's a story. They believe America is a white supremacist nation. They believe it was founded on racial principles. They believe that white people are the core of American society, and they've lined up a history to support that. We are all creatures of the memories we grow up with, and then we just hope that we get educated. And we get some of that memory dislodged by, by better history. And in some ways, it is, it is incumbent on education, on schooling, on universities, and on my own profession of historians to reach out more, to get outside of the academy, to get outside of our schools, and to educate the public about this story of how the United States put itself back together after its most divisive experience, its bloodiest most divisive experience in the Civil War, which resulted in four million slaves being freed and the U.S. Constitution being rewritten in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But we ultimately put, put the Union back together on the backs of black people. We did it by creating a structure, a regime, an American apartheid, really, that placed those freed people and their sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters into a system of dead-end segregation. And this is why you, you're hearing so much in the news, uh, at least by informed commentators, about why and how all these Confederate monuments, or the vast majority of them, about 80% of them, all went up between about 1890 and the 1920s. In that roughly 30-year period, not only did white supremacy um, take hold of the southern states and much of, much of the north as well, but the lost cause ideology, the idea that the south had fought for a noble cause, that it, it fought for its home, it fought for heritage, and it was led by this great Christian soldier, Robert E. Lee, uh, who, who was transformed by the early 20th century into a great American hero, not just a great Southern hero. And I would just say one last thing here. As we keep having this ongoing debate, and I have no idea where it's going to end, about what to do with Confederate iconography and memorials, the monuments that bother me most are the 12 Confederates inside the U.S. Capitol. Now, we know why they got there, because every state gets two. It's a product of states' rights, ironically. But Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee have statues in Statuary Hall inside the U.S. Capitol. They fought to destroy the American Union. But they cannot be removed without Congress doing it. So here's yet another challenge to this Republican-controlled Congress. 
do they have the moral backbone to stand up and say, Jeff Davis should come out of the U.S. Capitol? Haven't seen that happen yet. There is some movement toward that. But let's watch that mm. to see where this uh, monument mania ends up going. Mm. You know, you, you talk about stories and narratives, and I grew up in Virginia, and one of the things that I remember well, hearing, yeah, was that uh, states' rights, the, the Civil War is fought over states' rights, and to this day, that's what yeah. people talk about. Uh, I'm David Rocha. This is where we live. I'm in for Lucy Napolitanchel today. We're talking about hatred and divisions in our country con and confronting that hatred. Um, joining us is David Blight. He's a professor of American history at Yale University and author of the Guardian piece, The Civil War Lies on Us Like a Sleeping Dragon, America's Deadly Divide and Why It Has Returned. Thanks for joining us, Professor Blight. You're welcome, David. Thank you. When we come back, we'll talk about how to respond to hate. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email wherewelive at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpathangel. Today we're talking about confronting hate. What is the most effective way to stop bigotry in its tracks? Joining us now to talk about this from the studios of WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama, is Michael Harriet. He's a staff writer at The Root, and he's also author of a recent piece entitled, Yes, Anti-Fascists Are Violent and Necessary. He's also host of the Black One podcast. And also with us from Montgomery, Alabama, is Leisha Brooks. She's Outreach Director for the Southern Poverty Law Center. We've got a strong Alabama contingent today, which is great, especially considering the civil rights movement has deep roots there. Uh, welcome to Where We Live, Michael and Leisha. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. You can also join the conversation at 860-275-7266, email wherewelive at wnpr.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We do have a caller on hold, but before I get to the caller, I would like to ask Michael. Um, Michael, after the events in Charlottesville, we've been hearing a lot about the Antifa or anti-fascist movement. I mean, it's certainly been around for a while, but they've uh, gotten a lot more media attention after uh, the Charlottesville events and um, some of the events over the past year at Berkeley. Um, explain to us a little bit about this movement and what their views are on violence as a means to respond to fascism. Well, I, I think um, one of the first words that comes up when you discuss Antifa is violence. And it is not really the crux of their movement. The movement uh, is it began in Europe uh, during the Second World War, and they pledged to basically do anything possible. Um, a lot of us know about the phrase by any means necessary, which comes originally from the Antifa movement. And they pledged to do anything possible to stop fascism, uh, what what they saw in with Hitler. And so what they say is that they have pledged to take direct action. And some people do it by activism. Some people do it by education. And some people do it through fighting back physically, which has been a component of every liberation movement that's been successful in history. So uh, we see Antifa and we say violence, but it's not really the basis of their philosophy. What their philosophy is, is taking direct action to stop fascism or this nationalist agenda. But what about the the events that happened in Charlottesville where um, we know that there was some violence that took place? There was, you know, um, some uh, you heard Donald Trump say that both there's bad people on both sides. Uh, 
what about just violence as a means to um, gain social change in this context? Is I guess another way to ask that question would be, is bigotry itself or is hate speech itself enough to um, to justify violence to achieve the end of that um, bigotry or hate speech? Or um, do you, is violence only um, um, ethical or reasonable if it's in response to violence? What do you, what's your opinion on that? And what do you think, how do you think Antifa would respond to that? Well, uh, what I would think Antifa would say is I don't think that they're fighting hate speech, right? Um, I think hate speech is the genesis of, lo- of a lot of things. And one of them, one of them is hate. So I don't think if, I think if, uh, most of the people who are involved with Antifa, and it's hard to categorize it because it is by its nature a disparate group of people, right? Uh, and many of them are anarchists who don't follow any pledged agenda. So it is hard to classify it. But what I would say is that they are fighting hate, not hate speech. And I, I think if the people on the other side, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, I think if they were only there to talk about white supremacy or if they only existed to talk about white supremacy, then I don't think Antifa would be involved as much as they are to stop the bombings, the lynchings, the systematic oppression of people of color and immigrants and different religions across the country. And I think that is what they use any tactic to stop and not necessarily speech. Mm. I want to turn to... uh to our guest from the Southern Poverty Law Center, Leisha Brooks. She's also outreach director at Southern Poverty Law Center. Leisha, I want to ask you some of the same questions. Um, when we see, uh, uh, I guess, when Michael's talking about the that uh, white supremacists aren't just talking about uh, hate, they are sort of being hate, or their their goals are sort of um, the removal of people of color and sort of you know the, what that looks like. And how that could inspire or justify um, using direct action or violent acts to uh, stop that in its tracks. How does the Southern Poverty Law Center um, think uh, about those sort of direct actions against um, hate or hate speech? What's the the take your take on that? Well, thanks for having us, David. Um, First, I mean, each of us has a moral obligation to take a strong stand against fascism and white supremacy. We completely agree with that. The Southern Poverty Law Center, though, was really birthed out of the modern American civil rights movement. Julian Bond was our first president. We have a deep and abiding um, um, uh, call to nonviolent protest. We believe in nonviolent protest. We also know from that research and history shows us that by reacting violently to to uh, neo-fascists or fascists will bounce back. Um, we're just playing into the hands of the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists when we come back at them with violence. It will spiral into continued violence. We saw that happen in Nazi Germany. It gives rise to um, uh, folks who who see who see those pushing back against neo-fascism as the violent players. Uh, they see chaos, and this is what the white supremacists seek. They seek to create chaos, they seek to present themselves as the victims, um, and they seek to uh, gain sub, um, uh, public support 
through those through those uh, strategies. So the Southern Poverty Law Center really stands by our 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 call to nonviolent peaceful protests, similar to what we saw in Boston on on Saturday. So, um, Sherry, I wanted to ask, um, how do people confront if if people feel compelled to go to a white supremacist rally because they just they feel like they cannot allow somebody to come to their town? Um, but when you're confronted with that sort of hatred and bigotry, how do people who feel compelled to go, how would they maintain some sense of composure, not feel like they have to actually interact or get violent with that group? I know it's kind of a tough question. I don't know if anybody, uh, Michael, maybe you have some suggestions on that. Uh, how do people, how are people able to actually go see these groups and then maintain some sort of self-control when they're confronting such anger and hostility and hatred? Well, um, I think there is a multifaceted approach. Now, when we talk about the civil rights movement, we know that part, we, we always talk about the marches and the sit-ins and the, and things of that nature. But what we forget about was that Martin Luther King and the NAACP and the uh, Southern uh, Committee for Nonviolence, they they had these training sessions all over the country before every event, before every march, before the March on Washington, before they crossed the Sel- Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. They had these training events and they spoke to the people. They trained them on how to carry out the actions of, of nonviolence. So we often look at it as just a series of marches and forget about the education that went along with it. And, and as far as uh, your question, I think um, that, it is hard to ask people to respond to uh, hate and nonviolence in their faith in their face uh, by resisting the same. So I think we have to have this education um, with the with groups that are committed to nonviolence. I think you know that we we talk about uh, the multifaceted approach. We have to talk about voting. We have to you know because just being at a protest might not solve this problem. So you have to talk about community um, goals, uh, voter registration. We have to talk about um, the people who actively work year-round to confront these groups individually, right? The people who go and educate people about uh, hate groups, the people who go and educate people about anti-Semitism, the people who work with police departments to stop it. the pe- and, and, and a lot of it, as we see with every movement, is talking to the people that are in the periphery of these movements and, and saying, look, if you see something or if you know something, you have to contact law enforcement. Because, again, we're not just talking about speech. We're talking about um, physical violence from the parts of white supremacists. We're talking about you know, the bombings of uh, mosques and temples. We're talking about, uh, you know, hangings. We're talking about police violence. We're talking about uh, KKK members being embedded in law enforcement agencies. So we have to take these specific actions to fight all of these separate incidents of hate. Mm. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoshan for Lucy Now Potential. Today we're talking about hatred and divisions in our country and confronting that hatred. Joining us is Leisha Brooks. She's an outreach director for the Southern Poverty Law Center and Michael Harriet. He's a staff writer at The Root. Uh, I wanted to get to a caller really quick. Sherry is calling from Danbury. Uh, go ahead, Sherry. You're on Where We Live. 
Oh, hi. I am a white woman. I married a black man in 1970. And as your first guest said, I have seen the waxing and waning of hate in America, um, sometimes feeling unsafe, sometimes just being aggravated. Sometimes um, my daughter was refused services in Virginia because she was of mixed race um, at a doctor's office. Um, but what I can't emphasize enough is that none of this could happen without that vast majority of people who are on the line and who say nothing. It's not the far right or the far left. They'll always be with us. But the everyday person has to say, when they hear something, say something, but they don't know what to say. So what I'm telling you has worked for me, and I would encourage others to do, is say something very simple. Why would you say that? So if they say something racist or against a religion or against a, uh, some other minority, to say, why would you say that? And no matter what they say, say, why would you say that? It makes all those people in the middle come up short. Mm. That's a great point, Sherry. I, I think also it's, it's probably important to point out that uh, people who are, are nice or never consider to some, themselves to be a racist often uh, have sort of subconscious biases that might make them uh, actually racist in ways that they will never, they couldn't recognize. I think uh, people are talking about unconscious and subconscious biases and, and how do we recognize those? And I think Sherry made a good point. If, if, if somebody recognizes that, um, point it out. I think that people won't know that they're being racist unless somebody actually points that out. I don't know with Leisha or, or uh, would you have any response to that? What are your thoughts on just how people can make little decisions in day-to-day lives to sort of confront um, uh, bigotry and hatred? I appreciate the, the caller's suggestion. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has a, a publication called Speak Up Against Everyday Bias and Bigotry that has just just those uh, suggestions around, around that same um, line of thinking. It's kind of ways to intervene with family, with at the workplace, in a store, um, with strangers. Um, I think it's it, research shows it's very important to kind of think about these things in advance and think about how one might respond when confronted with biased or bigoted or racist statements or, you know, you see someone being harassed. It's very important to think about what your response will be in advance so that you're able to respond in the moment. So all of those those resources, in addition to our 10 Ways to Fight um, Hate, are on our website, and they're all free and able, able to download um, today. So that's at the Southern Poverty Law Center's website. I want to get to one more caller. Um, Daniel is calling from New Britain. Go ahead, Daniel. You're on Where We Live. Yeah, thanks a lot. I just read an article by Pat Buchanan, If We Erase Our History, Who Are We? And it, it speaks to exactly the topic of conversation here. And I think the president just asked uh, very honestly, you know, how far does this go? Because at the end of the day, we're in an identity crisis in the West. And I think it's hypocritical if we don't just accept the fact that starting with the explorers, even before the foundation of the country, you know, French, Spanish, Portuguese, they were all white supremacists by the terminology being used, this Orwellian narrative being spun by the media that anybody who wants to preserve the culture of the West and the foundation at a biological basis is a racist, white supremacist, neo-Nazi. And I mean, the founding fathers would all fit into that category as well. So are we going to tear the whole thing down? How far does this go? And there should also be a realization that the left has their own violence. The man that tried to kill Scalise, 
uh, was a reader of the Southern Poverty Law Center, as well as a Black Lives Matter sympathizer that killed the five cops in Dallas. So it's on both sides, and that's all the president was saying. And I think this reaction is so completely overblown. It's uh, it's actually dividing the country more because you're taking all the Trump voters and you're basically calling them Nazis now. Mm. So I don't know where this ends. Uh, maybe a second civil war. Hopefully not. Well, Daniel, I, I appreciate the call. Um, uh, I think that just, that's just a yeah. fascinating response. I mean, it's it's interesting that you would you would say that it's all overblown, and then the caller is able to come up with you know kind of all these things that 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 are apparently already kind of resting in his, in his heart and mind. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center issued a report after the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, um, when we were, began to look anew at, at Confederate monuments and mo- memorials. We, um, just like the professor that, that preceded us in, on, on the show, we're not trying to remove history. We're trying to move these monuments to a false history to a place of um, education, to to museums, to archives. We take issue with them being placed in public in public space, uh, where people who were who were and continue to be um, harmed um, and reminded of a history of inequality and oppression. And um, I would say that that we're very selective in what history we choose to memorialize. I would remind the caller that, um, you know, it, it, we think nothing of um, tearing down sacred burial grounds at, at Standing Rock um, or memorials to people of color who have, who have, who have long made uh, important contributions to the country. But some folks just want to concentrate on, on uh, the so-called heroes of the lost cause of the Confederacy. Mm. Right. And, and and one thing I'd like to add is is this idea of the Western culture and celebrating Western culture. If you look at Germany, I don't think there's any group of people who are more aware of their history and their culture than, than Germans. And they don't celebrate uh, their Nazi past. It's illegal to have a Nazi symbol, symbology in public. Uh, they don't have Nazi statues. They put them in museums. And, and, and I don't this this idea that, you know, history, unless it's on a sidewalk in front of your town square is erased is just a false idea. Right. Because, um, you know, there are millions of towns across America. Most towns don't have these this symbology of of white supremacy in public. And somehow they know about the Civil War. Somehow they know about American history. So it's just a false narrative. And as far as, um, you know, the the violence on the left and the right, like I think that everyone involved, um, I, you know, that's a false narrative, too, because they 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 say it as if like the left is happy that Steve Scalise was shot as much as the right was happy as nine people were killed in a Charleston church. And I don't think either side, the left or the right, was happy about that, right? So Mm. both sides should be working towards erasing this hate from the public consciousness. And not just the speech again, but the actions. Mm. We've got a lot of callers coming in. I want to get to uh, Marcy is calling from New Haven. Marcy, go ahead. You're on where we live. Hey, it's uh, Mercy, like Lord have, actually. Oh, forgive Um, me. No, no worries. Uh, so I'm actually I'm actually calling in response to the last caller um, and his misconception of what white supremacy is. 
So white supremacy, uh, as it's being spun today, is an allegiance to Western culture, which is actually absolutely not the case. White supremacy um, it stems from whiteness, the creation of whiteness, um, which was created for the sole purpose of dividing, uh, dividing the cultures and creating a system of oppression against people of color and creating this supreme identity for individuals who were white. Um, something that I say all the time when I'm having conversations about race is that I think white people who are, or individuals who identify as white need to redeem the culture that that whiteness actually stole from them. Um, uh, we talk about America being this huge melting pot. We talk about several cultures coming together, but whiteness actually steals that culture from individuals. And I just wanted you to call and, and really just um, challenge that thinking and make a plea for education because some of these things are not being taught in schools. Actually, most of these things are not being taught in school. Whiteness was created as a legal thing to oppress people of color. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, Mercy, because that's actually one of the things we wanted to talk about. But it's it's uh, uh, a, a topic that um, actually Colin McEnroe has uh, covered a little bit. So if you, if anybody's interested in hearing a show about whiteness, um, I, I encourage you to go to WMPR.org and check out Colin McEnroe's show um, that he did on that. Um, again, the number to call, 860-275-7266. The email is where we live at WNPR.org. And Facebook and Twitter is at where we live. Um, I have one more caller from is Wall. Walter from Branford. Walter, go ahead. You're on where we live. Hey, how are you? Um, so I just wanted to, uh, to, to the previous there two callers ago, I, I believe, um, talking about where does it end with the statues. I think it's pretty simple. If you have generals of the military that took up arms and tried to fight and destroy the United States, that's a pretty clear line. If you have members of the military who tried uh, and fought bloody, bloody battles to keep people enslaved, that's a pretty clear line. As far as Antifa, you know, I see it bandied about in the press now. It seems like something that, you know, journalists want to make sure they're covering both sides, but it doesn't really exist in the United States. If you see where its origin comes from, and it's another thing that came out of uh, the way journalists covered the Trump campaign. Um, you've got far-right websites talking about things that then percolate into the mainstream media, Sure, it might have been a fringe movement, uh, more about identity and people identifying with a movement or a group in Europe than it is here. But to talk about Antifa as anything but something that comes out of the far-right beaver swamps and really is pushed by the same sources that have been linked to Russian propaganda is really, really a bad uh, and, and misguided thing because it just isn't true. And it plays into the far-right's hands of setting up this both-sides narrative if uh, honest press encourages it. And, you know, there are anti-fascists, but to name it something like Antifa and give it a cute name will allow um, um, uh, some sort of a group to percolate that uh, disaffected people who aren't necessarily mentally stable will gravitate to on the left side, and that doesn't get us anywhere. Walter, thanks for your call. Yeah, we uh, we have to go to break soon, but I wanted to get um, Alicia Brooks and Michael Harriet to weigh in uh, quickly just on some of the, the comments the callers have been making. Uh, right. uh, fa- uh, go ahead, Michael. And I, and I don't want to come off as a defender or a, 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 pro, a proponent of Antifa, but we all have to remember this false equivalency because if no white supremacists were in Charlottesville, Antifa wouldn't have been there, right? So there's, you know, when you talk about anti-fascism, it's an easy thing to stamp out if you stamp out fascism, right? 
So um, I think that false equivalency, when you talk about Black Lives Matter, I always say there's an easy way to get rid of Black Lives Matter if you stop killing or mistreating black people. So it's a false narrative because these groups like the KKK, like the white supremacy movement, the white nationalist movement, they've always been here. And these other things are, however you think about them, they are responses to white supremacy. Hmm. Alicia, will you give me a response real quickly? I, I completely agree with Mr. Harriet. Um, no one would have been there had, had, had the white supremacists not chosen to, to show up. Um, now that they have shown up, it's important for us to show up as well. We don't, we don't need to. I don't believe that we need to show up violently, but I, need, I do know that we need to show up in force. We need to show up uh, and take a strong statement against, or make a strong statement, rather, against white supremacists and say that, that, that this will not happen. And um, I applaud folks who are, who are showing up and saying just that. Um, it moves beyond uh, Charlottesville, as as you may know. Um, there are rallies that are that are scheduled to take place in the Bay Area next week. There are you know white supremacists in the in Richard Spencer is trying to you know relaunch his college tour. This thing is not going not going to just stop. So we really have to to um, be smart about our strategy. I completely agree. Also, with with Mr. Harriet pointed out how during the modern American civil rights movement, organizers um, trained folks in nonviolent resistance. And I, I will remind us that, that people didn't think that was a good idea then either until they were organized and trained to do so. And then the, the strategy turned out to be absolutely brilliant. Not everyone was able to participate in that, and that's okay, and not everyone will be able to participate in nonviolent resistance today. But it's a strategy that can can and does work, and it will be especially effective against white supremacists who seek chaos, who seek a spectacle, who seek media attention, and we have got to starve them of that attention. We got a lot to talk about. We have to leave it there for now. Uh, I'm David Roche. I'm in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. When we come back from the break, we'll learn about a creative approach to confronting hate in Germany. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm David Roche, in for Lucy Napathanchel. Today we've been talking about hate, recent gatherings of white nationalists, and how to respond to bigotry. We wanted an overseas perspective on this conversation, so we called Fabian Wickman. He's a case manager at Exit Germany, and he's in charge of public relations and campaigning. He joins us now from Germany to tell us about a creative approach to responding to neo-Nazi marches in his home country. Fabian, welcome to Where We Live. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So we also joining us from ISDN, uh, the studios in WBHM Birmingham in Alabama is Michael Harriet. He's a staff writer at The Root and Leisha Brooks. She's an outreach director for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Again, the number to call for uh, joining this conversation is 860-275-7266. The email is where we live at WNPR.org. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So uh, Fabian, tell us a little bit about the German town of Wunzido. Uh, why is it why is it important to neo-Nazis? Um, <clears throat> yeah, in this town there was the grave um, of the second hand of um, Adolf Hitler, um, the man called Rudolf Hess, and he's buried there. 
um, since years ago, then they um, put the grave um, to another other place. But um, neo Nazis went there every year um, to yeah to think about Rudolf Hess and um, also Adolf Hitler. So they went there and demonstrate there every year since um, yeah since years since um, more than ten twenty years. So tell us a little bit about your organization, um, Exit Germany. Uh, what, do, what do you guys try to do? What do you try to accomplish? Um, Exit Germany is something, um, is a project for people who want to leave the right-wing scene, um, maybe similar or yeah, quite similar to um, Exit USA. Um, we are um, offer, um, offer help for people um, who have a core motivation to think about something has to be changing in their life. So they um, used to call us, and we tried to help them to leave the scene. So a couple of years ago, you guys did something interesting um, with the town of Vonzito. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you did. You, you created uh, a walkathon. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was an idea to, to think about. Um, there are demonstrations, um, and they are quietly utilized. So um, there are the uh, neo-Nazis um, came to this town, um, the citizens of this town, um, yeah, do counter protest or maybe do nothing anymore because it's too much to to um, do it every year so we think about um, a new communication strategy so we we, we set up um, in german it's called um, rechts gegen rechts uh, in uh, america it's called nazis against nazis so we said for every meter um, the neo-nazis um, walk in this town they involuntarily donate 10 euros for exit germany so they walk against himself. Their money came from um, local citizens or local um, other people there. They donated before the march. Um, and um, the march was uh, with banners, and we got also bananas um, saying, okay, um, to be fit and to, to walk the whole distance, you have to have bananas. Um, and we put some funny banners um, on the streets and also signs on the streets saying thanks for maybe 5,000 euros, um, walk on. So um, we make a little fun out of it. Um, and after <laughs> all, we make a short video. Um, and that video goes viral 2014 and now um, again. So you basically, you, you, they were marching against themselves. How did you guys come up with that idea? Um, yeah, the idea was to, to think about how to handle demonstrations, how to, to, to bring up a new creative idea. Also to say, there is a narrative of the demonstrators. They're saying, we are here, we are remind Rudolf Hess. And they, they do what they want to do it in a peaceful and um, very... Uh, um, yeah, way like the the third rich. So we say we we take this narrative um, and make something new out of it. So we make a funny story. So there's no um, glorifying anymore of this um, third rich. Now it's a funny story about dumb neo Nazis who walk to the town and spend involuntary ten thousand euros. Um, and the idea is, uh, um, yeah, um, it's uh, developed. Um, next to beer and cigarettes. <laughs> Those often lead to the most profound ideas i found. What do you think we can learn in the United States from the work that you guys have been doing? Uh, I don't know. I think there are maybe um, 
two major levels. Um, one thing is to to think about funny and ironic um, stories to um, handle that demonstrations because there is a need to um, um, a need to respond to the main society um, to to empower the society to get connected to this um, society. Um, maybe satirical stuff is there um, useful for, but also there is a need for the security, for the police. Um, um, on the pictures of um, Charlottesville, I didn't see police dividing the groups. Um, I only see different groups get together, get into conflict um, and all that stuff. Um, if you look at Germany, um, the police try to divide both groups the whole time. Um, and if there is a moment of conflict, the police will get in short and fast and divide these groups. Um, and maybe that's one point, to make sure that there is a counter-protest in the near of the demonstration, but to make also sure that there is no directly confrontation of both groups. Um, maybe that's one point. I didn't see police. Um, I see police at the end um, when there was some um, conflict or when there was an accident, but not um, in the moment. But it can, can be also be that I only see a part of it, not the whole situation. Mm. Well, we only have about a minute left, but I wanted to get Leisha Brooks from the Southern Poverty Law Center to weigh in quickly. Leisha, you have about 30 seconds. Can you just respond? How do we, we use satire or things to, or some kind of um, acerbic humor to address these things? I think that that's proved to be a very effective uh, means of, of, of countering that, that type of speech, especially um, with a provocateur like Milo Yiannopoulos or even Richard Spencer. Um, it's a. It's also a way for us not to be seen in the in the larger society as a, as kind of violent protesters. I want to thank um, our, our friend in Germany, the um, Jewish Bar Association in San Francisco, has picked up on on what you did and and has launched an Adopt a Nazi um, fundraiser for San Francisco, where they're expecting um, a protest next week. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Lisa Burks from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I also want to thank Michael Harriet, staff writer at The Root. Um, uh, also, David Blight, a professor of American history at Yale, and our German guest, Fabian Vickman. Thank you so much for joining us. I also want to thank uh, Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson for producing the show. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Check out wnpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpothanchel, and thanks for listening. <laughs>